it's invisible and it's not valued by the world and you can make huge progress. Your whole life can change. The way you look at the world can totally change and the way you relate to everything can change. But unless unless you meet somebody who can see that, which uh, I believe you know, gurus, enlightened beings can, unless you do that, it's it's like you're doing this enormous work and the world thinks you're kind of just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or being self-obsessed even. Yeah. You know, I think it's the opposite of being self-obsessed. You are, you are untangling yourself from the whole ego, individual identification. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Okay, curious yogis. I can't believe we've made it to the end of season two. It did not go how I planned in terms of timeline and episodes, but all in all, it was such a wonderful season. I was so privileged to spend many, many hours in deep conversation with such inspiring yogis and meditators and teachers and activists and good-hearted humans, earnest seekers. What a blessing. I just loved it so much. It's inspired my own practice more than I can share. And I also want to thank you, the listeners, for all the feedback I've received recently in the form of emails, voice notes, social media shares, reviews. <sighs> it's so nice. Just knowing that these talks are reaching the ears of sincere seekers like myself totally lights me up and is such a motivator to keep going. So thank you for being here and actively connecting. I have so much appreciation for the community that's being built up through this podcast. And after this season two wrap up, I'm going to take a break for a couple months to travel in India with my dearest nurse yogi, really go deeper into my own sadhana here in Kulu and think about what's next for season three. I really hope to continue to learn and share and teach the wisdom of yoga sadhana and Advait Vedant while making efforts for a peaceful world and remaining dedicated to my practice. And please, 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 if you haven't got on my newsletter, do so and hit me up. Let me know what you want more of and what your sadhana needs so that a curious yogi podcast can continue to inspire all of our spiritual work, our collective work. All right, so today I'm joined once again with a wonderful teacher, meditator, satsangi, deep philosophical thinker, great human, who I'm also honored to call my friend, Vijay Sham. If you haven't listened to season one, episode five, check it out because that's the first conversation we had on the podcast where Vijay shares his really wild stories and very profound insights. So I recommend checking that out. Today's talk is a little bit different. 
One, because we're together up in the mountains, but two, because we're fresh from a visit to Babaji. And if you haven't listened to that earlier conversation, it's an extraordinary story of how Vijay met Babaji in Kirganga, Himachal Pradesh in 1985, only to lose him and then find him again 30 years later. Vijay has so generously shared the blessings of Babaji with many of his friends who have deep questions about the nature of reality and open hearts. So I'm one of those blessed friends who's had the chance to meet Babaji. So today, as Vijay and I discuss what we're experiencing in our own sadhana, highlighted by the teachings of our shared guru, along with Babaji and other enlightened beings, I've clipped in some of our talk with Babaji from his little room at the temple. And I'll sidestep this intro for a moment to remind you that this podcast is so packed with wisdom and heart, but it's a low budget, okay? I, I'm editing it myself, so, uh, and I'm no master sound producer, so be patient with the audio quality at some points and just keep your attention on the gyan or knowledge that is shared. The episode is a little longer than usual, and that's because it's filled with so much brilliance and delight. I have so much fun with Vijay, and I indulge to celebrate that totally great company I was blessed with. So, with all that said, sit back, relax, and come to the Himalayas with Vijay and I. Okay, I think we'll just go for it. Spontaneous, as as discussed prior. <laughs> so, this is a special episode, many reasons, because it's the last episode of the second season, and special because... You're back on the podcast again, Vijay, after, you think it was episode five in season one, one of the earlier episodes, so I'll put the that episode in the show notes so if people are listening, they can go back and hear your epic conversation on the tiger, the baba, and the guru. <laughs> Such a catchy title. And it's number three special because we're here in the Himalayas in a very special place, so I think we should start by you setting the scene of where we are, what are we looking at, and just to bring the the listeners into this magical space where we are. Okay, thanks, Bobby. Yeah, if you can hear, I don't know if you can hear voices in the background, but we're sitting in Shankar village in the morning sun after a cold Himalayan night. Uh, Really beautiful here. Shankar is a village that was... Only five years ago they built the road, so it's still relatively untouched and feels very remote. And we're high up, uh, and it has this beautiful, amazing Shiva temples. And we, yeah, we we went here to take a break, <laughs> I guess. And uh, we on the way we, we visited the Baba, that is the Baba in the title of the podcast Bobby did with me a year and a half ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he lives he lives nearby, and we saw him on the way. And we've been visiting him a few times. I think maybe for both of us this time, we've been talking about it. The the greatest takeaway, so to speak, was for a long time he's been saying, observe your thoughts, observe your thoughts and trust. Recently, he's been saying two things that have uh, I've been thinking a lot about. One was it's not what you look at, it's how you look at 
yourself and the world that would change the world. Everything is the same, no, no changes, but our view makes us comfort. Until our view is not making us, in Veda it is called, mind is the, is the cause of freeness and binding. Only the mind. If he, he gets the right direction, he's free. If he not got the right direction, he's bounded. So, the right direction will come through the blessing of Guru. So instead of looking at the world and saying, there's a problem, let me fix it. And saying, looking, looking at the world with with a freedom and seeing that it's already perfect and the way he looks at it and I think the way our guru also looks, looked at us was that view, looking at you as perfection, as already perfect. Um, such an amazing teaching and that you can do that yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think this time, what he said this time was very much place your your thoughts, your busy mind, your ego at the feet of Guru. Guru will work when you surrender. And what you surrender, only the ego. Because ego is hurting you, not the anything. So when you will surrender the ego, then what you have? You have nothing. And you are nothing. Then, then what for worry? And who is worry? And by guru, he doesn't mean him or our guru in a way. You can picture it that way, but the the real meaning is place it at the feet of pure being, pure consciousness, eternal space, uh, which is also your own true nature. So... Instead of saying, my mind is disturbed, let me find a solution, which is just the mind chasing its own tail. He's saying, place the whole drama of the mind chasing its own tail at the feet of guru, meaning surrender it. Don't think there's a solution to the mind, surrender it. Mm-hmm. Which is really, really beautiful. God, nobody has seen. Guru, you have. So guru is God. So, do the meditation and prayer to your Guru to take surrender. Mm-hmm. Is surrender the same as meditation? Surrender is... What surrender are you thinking? You Only say? ego is going to surrender. Ego yeah. is going to surrender there. Mm-hmm. Not the body. You surrender your ego? Yes. And with that you surrender your identity, your karma, your doing? This is your ego, I am this, I am that, I am Yaman. All this, whatever you are thinking, is ego. Mm -hmm. And if you surrender this ego in your Guru's feet, then you are pure bliss.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also love that. And it's always interesting, too. Like, I feel like when you're such an earnest seeker or sadhak, like I know you and I both are, and probably many of the listeners, that whatever is kind of coming up for us, like the answer comes, you know, and like whether it's in the form of the words of Babaji a few days ago, like saying, offer it all to the feet of Guru, which was sort of exactly what I needed to hear to pop through that mental suffering, that chasing the tail that goes around and around, you know, and like even just before this morning when we were having breakfast, that beautiful quote or reference from the scriptures that you take one step towards guru meaning your true self not like you said not necessarily the guru as a person and guru that true self our true nature our knowingness of that takes a hundred or a million even steps towards us and i think that's something that like really got open for me and also maybe the last visit you were on and you shared with me, or maybe it was when I, the last visit I saw Babaji also, the, how, just the reminder that the sadhana, our spiritual practice, is between me and guru, or me and God, or me and my relationship to my own self. It doesn't have to do with anybody else. That, But that's a hard teaching to put into practice when mm. the world is coming at us from all sides, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that uh, in contradiction to the worldly work, the sadhana, the spiritual process, is invisible. And it, it can be seen by maybe by other people, or it can un- be understood by other people who are also doing sadhana, who are doing spiritual work. But still, it's, you know, it, it's not visible in how you, what you look like, really, what you wear. It's not outer signs, it's not rituals. You don't have to go around saying namaste all the time, you know. It's it's invisible and it's not valued by the world and you can make huge progress. Your whole life can change. The way you look at the world can totally change and the way you relate to everything can change. But unless unless you meet somebody who can see that, which uh, I believe, you know, gurus, enlightened beings can, unless you do that, it's... It's like you're doing this enormous work and the world thinks you're kind of just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or being self-obsessed even. Yeah. You know, I think it's the opposite of being self-obsessed. You are, you are untangling yourself from the whole ego, individual identification. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking also one thing that Babaji also said on this visit. He was quoting the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna speaks to his disciple, Krishna, as the guru speaks to his disciple, Arjun, who is asking questions about how to be in the world, how to live, what to do and how to act. And he says, come inside me. Step, be inside me and let me live your life because I'm the driver of the chariot of your body and you are just a passenger, so don't worry. In Gita, Krishna says, you come in the shelter of me. I will relieve from you from the deeds. Or you surrender in front of me, then 
I will make you free from all the deeds. And also saying your, your, your nature is immortal because Arjun stands in front of a huge battle which is a symbol of the battle of the mind and he's afraid of dying uh, a physical death but you can also say we are afraid of dying the death of losing our individuality our identity our achievements and he says he says to he says to Arjun you are also you're deathless mm-hmm. um, you cannot be killed the most famous verses from the Bhagavad Gita you cannot you are that which cannot be killed and cannot killed cannot be touched by water cannot be made wet or blown by the wind or burned by fire you are the thing that remains mm-hmm. yeah I think that's interesting what you're saying about like how the sadhana is the invisible work or like you know we share it with our community of folks that are also practicing sadhana but how the world doesn't reflect that no matter what country you're in you know whether it's India or Canada or Denmark or wherever like the world prioritizes all of that of an individuality that recognition of accumulation of status of jobs of relations the whole thing and then like do you think that I'm just curious about your opinion as maybe someone that's taught meditation or that spends time with people that are sincerely seeking but do you think that being in that in the world in that way makes it harder to do sadhana to actually allow ourselves a space to unravel the mind or is it like well i guess it does happen everywhere (laughs) so you're asking if it's harder to do sadhana when you are engaged in the normal practical world and not sitting in your ashram or cave yeah i guess yeah (laughs) yeah for sure it is Mm -hmm. i mean for sure it is because people have been people have been seeking like-minded people doing spiritual work and isolating themselves in monasteries Mm -hmm. of all traditions and all religions forever Mm -hmm. for a very good reason (laughs) Because then you can you can focus on it, um, and also people have been seeking stillness from the noise of the world to be able to really examine who they really are and what is this mind and what is this being I am and what is the purpose. So for sure, when you step into the world of business and transaction and all that, then it takes it takes uh, more effort. Mm-hmm. and more trust but also at the same time it's also a great teacher the world is is also guru you're going to meet all the problems and all the provocations and all the stuff that highlights it just highlights where you are caught and that's the function of the world mm-hmm. the world is a reflection of you and so the world will keep pushing your buttons for you to become aware of them Mm -hmm. and then when you're not doing the spiritual work when you think you are this i am the individual and i am what what i think and what people think of me and society thinks of me then you're just caught you're you're just chasing the tail Mm -hmm. of the mind Mm -hmm. and constantly struggling Mm -hmm. and then when you meet some a teacher 
a wise teacher, a real teacher, they say, oh, give it to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Place it at my feet. I will absorb it. Mm-hmm. Don't keep chasing the mental tail of the mental dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, society is a, it's a mental construction. Yeah. Cities are ideas in bricks. Right? Uh, cities especially. Nature is different. People always seek nature. But cities is just its a mind. It's a huge mind built in brick. It's mm-hmm. ideas become manifest. Mm-hmm. So a, a city is a very, very mental place. And once you go into nature, what Papaji said yesterday, he said, look at the trees, they're meditating. When, whenever you disturb the nature, yeah. you worry. Yeah. All the problem comes. Yeah. And nature is working and everything is set by nature. You see the, the trees are standing from years and years. Whenever air comes, they move. Yeah, and fall. Uh-huh. <laughs> through, through nature. Yeah. They are, they are in meditation. Yeah. Trees are meditating. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Because according to the nature, they are working. So, we people have the problem, we are disturbing the nature. And nature, whenever disturbed, we disturb. Mm-hmm. So, only a way of coming nature, only meditation. It's like yeah. the wind is moving the trees, it's raining on them, but they're just swaying there in meditation. They're just one with the movement of nature. They're not interfering. A city is an enormous interference with nature, and our civilized lives are also mm-hmm. enormous interferences. Mm-hmm. And of course, we can't avoid it, but if we can know our true nature is much more simple and already peacefully meditating like the trees <laughs> yeah and then kind of interesting like the world also kind of solidifies or reinforces that ultimate fear that each and every person has which is the fear of death yeah like when we look at when we really examine all the fears or problems or troubles it can get distilled down 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 to that sense that the human being has that I don't want to die, I want to live forever. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's kind of the essence of the teachings of Advait Vedant is like, you were never even born. Yeah. But for a human being, mind to grasp that teaching, it's kind of like the ego is like, no, because the ego's job is there to help us stay safe and alive. Yeah, it's so for the body. Do, yeah, so yeah. how do we, as seekers or awakening beings that know I am holding these as if two apparent things at once. I am that divine, ever-present Krishna consciousness and I have this human body and mind and mechanism in this karmic incarnation to manage. So how do we... 
Yeah, it's you know? like it's it's a huge thing. It's and it's such a it's such a it's such an indication that we are we are contradictory beings, right? We have we 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 have the body that is going to die. At the same time, we have this inborn feeling: I'm eternal. I'm not going to die. Right? Everybody I know, I can accept to a certain degree. Every 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 people that out there, they're all going to die. But everybody carries this kind of belief, unspoken or spoken. But I'm not going to die. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to age. I'm going to go to my school reunion. They're all older, but I'm the same. <laughs> And in a way, it's true. <laughs> You know, but not on the physical level. So we carry these two things around. It's like I'm the body is dying and will end, but I feel immortal. And how can we reconcile that? Is one true and one false? In a way, they're, they're both true. Mm-hmm. But that it also means that you are not the body, obviously. If you say, I'm going to live forever, the body will not live forever. And you as a person with individuality and all that will not live forever. But there's something eternal in us. Mm-hmm. Do you think that in when we explore that or kind of examine that within our own lives, like yesterday we were talking about death and experiences we've had with clo- ones close to us that have mm. passed, and having a you know spiritual inclination or not, like the way we approach death can be so different for someone that maybe doesn't see a greater force at play beyond this physical body and how pain, death can create so much more inner conflict than, say, someone <clears throat> like yourself. We were talking about the passing of your parents, mm. how that experience can be more expanded and actually a deepening of the spiritual teachings. Yeah. When, sure. at the same time, grief is present. Yeah. Yeah, the grief... There's grief. You you miss the personal relationship, but also I remember when my dad died, there was this feeling of now you, you know, to meet him, you no longer need to take the train or make an appointment in time and space. In a way, he's now everywhere. At the same time, he's not available in the same way as a body, but he, I had, a, have, had and have a strong sense that now he's everywhere. And... Uh, The same when when our guru passed, there was a very strong feeling of from him being appearing, and he said that himself, "I appear as this body," and then suddenly the body is gone, and we took him to the cremation ground, and he became light and heat, and his spirit was everywhere, and is everywhere, and I think, you know, with people like that, uh, like our guru. There's still people coming who have never met him in the body who connect to him and become, you know, devoted to him as their teacher and feel a personal relationship. But coming back to the question, I'm kind of <laughs> 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 that um, yeah, you know, if you think that the person is the body and when the body goes away, the person is gone forever and the connection is cut. It's so painful, so, so painful. And that love we feel for the person is now coupled with the idea that the person is gone and we call that pain, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It seemed like, you know, 
your boyfriend or girlfriend goes to another city and the love you feel for them is now added with the idea are changed by the idea of separation in space and the loving becomes missing so when you when you add the concept of separation in time and space the love now looks like something else but it's still just love the the grief is love the missing is love when we think we are a thing in time and space and the and the our love is dependent on another thing another person in time and space then there's a sense of separation or closeness and then when the person is far away or dead which is very far away then the love feels like pain because we believe that this love was dependent on this thing in time and space and everything in time and space is bound to change and vanish and go far away and disintegrate and die Uh, and then the love we felt now is a pain, or mixed with pain. And I think with the spiritual practice, we can keep feeling that love, because we know that that distance and time and space and separation or change is not the end. It's not the ultimate reality. It's uh, it's just a change of matter, and we are beyond matter. We are consciousness. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think for me when I went through the thing with my parents' death, some in my family had a spiritual practice and some didn't, and there was a marked difference in the level of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I guess you know the way that we attach ourselves to people or relationships same with ideas or things but in this context like it also exists on a spectrum like the 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 love and attachment one feels to a parent or a sibling versus say a close friend or an acquaintance like it's so interesting to just examine like when like I didn't get affected when your father passed away because there's this kind of distance and even last year, I went through the experience of being with a friend when he passed. And it was traumatizing and uh, upsetting on the physical level, on the mental level. And yet, at the same time, I had this deep spiritual revelation that it was so clear. One moment the body is there, and the being is as if contained or coming through the body and then suddenly the body becomes bones and flesh and there's not even an attraction to it anymore it's just so clear like for me that was the first time of going through that kind of experience it was so clear that that being that person that I loved and admired and respected didn't become the space as in the sky space but he had always been the space. Mm-hmm. I had just, with my individual mechanism, saw the being, the person in front of me associating him with that. But actually, it was one of the greatest teachings of deathlessness, like Swamiji s- says again and again, and not only Swamiji, in the Vedas, in the Upanishads, in all the scriptures, in the Bhagavad Gita. That's what Krishna is saying to Arjun again and again. You are that being 
that cannot be killed, that cannot be cut, that cannot be wet, dried, hurt by words, nothing. You are that ever-present being that appears to be in the body, that appears to be here for a moment. And it's there's like sparks of that knowingness and then inevitably the, the individuality, the power of the ego and the intellect pulls us back into that feeling of missing someone or where the, the pureness gets mixed. Mm. You know? That is the spiritual work. It's it's knowing what belongs in the in the you can call it the vertical reality of time and space where everything ends and comes and goes and then what belongs to the you know you can say horizontal <laughs> you know, maybe a reality where everything is in the present ever present and and not everything because it's not a, it's not the world of things because things require separation in time and space it's the world it's a space where all the things appear inside that space and there's that famous indian uh, example of the jug and the space they say you have a jug and it's open in the top and there's air or space inside and there's space all the way around and as long as the jug is there you say well there's a space around and inside the jug there's a jug space which is like the individual soul and the body but that individual soul or that individual jug space is it's, it's not separate from the whole it's just because we look at it and our senses says, oh, inside and outside, separation. And if you break the jug, the body dies, and the space inside the jug does not change at all. It does not suddenly merge with the whole. It was not separate from the whole. The illusion was a sensory illusion, a naming and pointing and saying, I can see inside and outside. But the space is eternally unbroken and unborn and undying, and that's who we are. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, it's such a simple example. Nothing happens. You know, you break a glass. Have we broken space? No. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and so, but somehow it's easier for the mind to grasp that when it's a jug and in, as if insentient being. But then we. You know, the closer we get to our identifications, the more difficult the work becomes. Yeah. Which is also why I think it is such an important work. Like, as human beings, moving through this incarnation or moving through this life, like, just the remembrance. Like, I love in Yogasana, like, how the yogis created Chavasana or Mritasana, corpse pose or death pose. Mm. Swamiji called it Amar Asan or Shiv Asan, immortal or blissful pose, like to be able to approach that innate feeling we all have inside, which is the fear of death. And we can see it with ourselves, we can see it with those that we're close to, and actually go deeper into it. What is beneath face value of what is, you know, when we think also of the practice of vivek like discernment what is unchanging is the ultimate reality what is unchanging is that life force Mm. that is there like the life force is the thread whether a body is picked up or dropped off the life 
is always there. We, or the whole universe. Yeah, yeah, we have that awareness, and yet to see the body go from a little baby to all through life, mm. and ultimately like turn into light and heat in the cremation ground. What is that presence, that source energy or yeah. presence that's always there? Like to look at that and meditate on that. Like how then 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 it's just like Baba Ji said. Then it's becomes more clear it's actually how we are looking yeah when we can examine it that deeply i think ramdas this uh, american teacher he said if you know yourself to be soul and you look at everything as soul that transforms your world but if you think you're a body individual and look at the world as body individuality then that becomes your world so yeah it's how you look Mm-hmm. It's how you look, and and I think that fear of death, you know, there's one thing. Of course, we don't like the the body to die. You know, we want to be alive also, because uh, you know the body has a self-maintaining, sustaining ability. You know, we 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 need to keep this body alive. It's very important we have that sense. <laughs> yeah, and but also I think it's not. That's on the very practical, physical level that we don't like death because of that. But the deeper, deep, deep meaning of why we don't like death is that it contradicts the only thing we know when we come into this world, that is that we exist. Like, I am. You know, I don't know my name, my race, my gender, my family, my la- I have no language as a small baby, but I know I am, and I want milk, right? So... Our most innate, the only knowledge that we come in with and that we don't lose even with severe Alzheimer's is that I am. And and when somebody tells you that sense, I am, I exist, is going to get killed. It it, is so revolting (laughs) (laughs) to our... Our, our inborn knowledge of being eternal being, not that we are eternal beings, because we aren't. We are eternal being. It's not you, Bobby, you won't live forever, I won't live forever as this body, but that, that, that thing we carry with us, I am, which is also present, present in the trees and the birds and the stones, I think, or the space itself, that, that seed Uh, eternity, mm-hmm. immortality. Um, when that is contradicted in any way, we we uh, we react violently. Mm-hmm. And so, if we identify ourselves with things that can be destroyed, like community, like body, like how we look, age, possessions, and they are threatened, and we then conclude, my sense of being, I, is threatened. We are ready to destroy nations from that fear, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or go through fifteen plastic operations to keep being young, mm-hmm. because we feel we are eternally young and we really are. Mm-hmm. So when anything contradicts our our knowledge, and we don't know where that knowledge belongs, if we have placed our sense of immortality in the category of body. Mm-hmm or bank account, or marital status, or job position, 
if we have hooked it, if we have in lack of examining our sense of immortality and eternal being, if we have hooked that sense onto something mortal, imagine that hooking something immortal onto the something mortal, it's so scary mm-hmm. because it contradicts our truest knowledge, but we don't know why we react so strongly mm-hmm. because we haven't examined it. Yeah, but when you say that, it's so clear that kind of, not kind of, it's so clear that the whole world, any problem or sense of destruction or uneasiness, like it's it happens because each and every person, each and every being inside a person, what does everybody want? Happiness. Which What is happiness? Wholeness, a sense of completeness, a sense of, of non-separation. And when one, which the whole world does, like it's so rare that people actually want to examine what is lasting happiness, not the grabbing for the, yeah. the next thing, the next thing, because ultimately whatever on the body level brings us satisfaction ultimately brings us suffering because it will end. go end. Yeah. And so if we, like I loved how you said, put place our knowingness of immortality on something that is changing, yeah. we will of course be bound to be suffering and caught in that wheel of birth and death, birth and death. Yeah. So how do we get beyond birth and death? By knowing that we already are. <laughs> right? <laughs> that our sense of I'm not going to die is true. And I mean, I think I often say this, but it's like our totally naive child beliefs of I will live forever. It's true. And another naive belief is love will conquer everything. But it's true. Mm-hmm. It's not true on the physical level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't mean that if you just love and love and love, then everything will always be okay. Because the world will just keep changing and tumbling down and falling apart and coming up in strange ways. <laughs> Uh, but if you can know that you are just the witness of the world and you can love even the change that you don't want and be grounded in the sense that I'm not changing, even when my body is changing, even when my mind and my emotions are changing, it's not me who's changing. I'm just observing, like we said, the dog chasing its tail. Mm-hmm. If we can say, well, I don't like this dog chasing its tail, that's still the mind saying, I don't like it. So it's like, okay, observe the dog, the dog of the mind chasing its tail and observe the mind saying, stop, that stupid dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, it's just the mind adding another dog chasing its tail onto the dog chasing its tail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. but you like know, those Russian dolls. Yeah. Like, well, it this is. another doll and another doll and another Well, the dog. mind is like, yeah, it's like babushka, babushka dolls. So... So, yeah, coming back to the, like, you, you say, okay, well, this dog is going to keep chasing its tail. I'm just going to surrender the whole thing to what we call the feet of guru or space. Just saying, okay, I see it. I understand it's a, it's a mechanism without solution. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to surrender the whole thing because it's not mine. It's not me. I'm going to surrender it to where it came from, which is a space of pure mm-hmm. knowingness or guru or whatever we call that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's just a wave arising in that ocean of oneness. And we say, well, yeah, the mind is just a wave. There is no solution to the mind. On the contrary, the mind is is a mechanism that's somehow made to look for problems and solutions constantly. And it will never be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Like the waves in the ocean rarely stops. And they will always come again. But the ocean is always one. And uh, no, we don't sit at the ocean and we say, stop, stupid waves, stop, stop. <laughs> we say, how beautiful they keep arising and growing and there's a beauty in it. And they speak of the nature of all of existence that it comes in waves and, if, and we can say fine I am I'm not the waves mm-hmm. and even when we sit and meditate to see pure consciousness as that ocean to know I'm not the individual looking at that wave and that bubble but to know like the pure consciousness is me there's no separateness of wave and bubble it all comes from me, through me, for me. Because when we have that sense of devotion and trust, like you said at the beginning, to feet of guru or to, you know, in, in others, you know, in Patanjali, it's Ishvar Pranidhan, surrender to the divine. In Bhagavad Gita, it's said as something else, like that element of true offering and devotion of any attachment or clinging or sense of suffering doesn't make it go away, of course, but there's a, a, a spaciousness that starts to unfold slowly and slowly. And I think the way, maybe it's the way the mind works or the way my mind works or the way the world mind works, there's a sense like, I want it to happen tomorrow. Actually, I want it to happen yesterday. I want to be self-realized, but yet... It's a slow, like Swamiji said, it's transformation happens slowly, and yet the self is right there before even a kick of the cow or something like that. Like yeah. We unfold the awareness in whatever rate as if we do, or speed or progress, and yet it's always right there. That yeah. sense of deathlessness, of knowingness, of I am, or as Babaji so beautifully calls it, zero-ness. If you go in that, is, that state, when all thoughts will go, and you will in thoughtless mind, zero-ness, mm-hmm. there is no subject, nothing. In zero-ness, the reality, the self is only, consciousness is only, nothing else. Mm -hmm. You have to reach that place. And uh, you means ego. Only ego is working. We are not anywhere. Mm Only ego. Mm-hmm. When ego will go, there is nothing. No sad, no joy, nothing. That is zero-ness. 
So you said when you came in zeroness. Zeroness means there is nothing. So sadness comes from where? Imagination. Yes. And who imagining? Well, isn't it a manifestation of the self? Like self alone is. Mm -hmm. And imagination appears out of self. So it's also self. No. Self is pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. No mystery. And uh, <coughs> only consciousness is oneness, we call him. So it is a little hard to reach there. But you have to go through meditation. Some, something is left from you. A lot is left. Ah. <laughs> so we have to try to find it through the Guru prayer. Yeah. You know, he's saying, empty your thoughts, empty your thoughts. You are that zeroness, that yeah. emptiness that remains. What was that beautiful line he said? In the light of emptiness, you can know the reality. Yeah. Or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. And all teachers from all traditions have said that. Uh, I think Francis of Assisi, he also said, you have to empty yourself to make space for God. Uh and when he means yourself, he means all the thoughts and all the desires and all the aversions and all that. If you can empty yourself, then there will be place, you know, he called it God, which is the power that creates and destroys everything and which is what we are. Mm -hmm. Everything is that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was, something you said reminded me of Om Purnam, you know, mm. it's in the Upanishads, the beautiful prayer mantra of the whole, like how everything is part of the whole. So whatever you take from the whole is whole. Mm. Whatever you give to the whole is whole. The whole is always the whole. Like as human beings, we have these individual, un seemingly unique parts of ourselves, all these different parts and elements and stories and narratives and the whole thing is unfolding but what is at the base of that is that wholeness yeah so as a human as a spiritual seeker like to keep knowing that wholeness as we like this is where i get stuck is like having that spiritual awareness i am the whole it is all me it's all that deathless space oneness alone in meditation we can experience it very clearly the more and more we meditate the more and more easy it is to drop into that space mm. of no mind yeah. of zeroness and yet we open the eyes and the world comes and this nervous system reacts with the senses like babaji called or gave the beautiful 
description of the Gita, the horses are the five senses in the chariot. And like inevitably those will always try to pull us. Mm. And maybe it is happening so slowly for me that my senses are getting reined in and my mind is becoming more absorbed in that surrender to God. And yet I still get stuck. I still get hurt. I still get knotted into my own sense of individuality. But you learn from it. Mm. I think that's the difference, right? You know, same happens to me, where before it was like, how can I win this? Now it's, how can I even transcend mm. the field of right and wrong, winning and losing? But yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hard work. <laughs> it's like, you know, I often feel that, you know, spiritual work, it's like, It's like when a satellite or spacecraft enters Earth's atmosphere and it starts burning up, right? <laughs> and it burns and it burns and it burns and it shakes and everything, you know, uh, everything is burned up for the friction of entering. And then, you know, just a little escape spot, little escape pod with room for one person drops into the Pacific Ocean. And in a way, <laughs> that's kind of like, that's what's happening. In this case, I think even the escape pod burns up <laughs> in, the, in the case of spiritual practice. There's nothing, mm -hmm. nothing left but the space. Mm -hmm. Everything that we have accumulated through this life of opinions and body and opinions, uh, judgment, uh, all that, the whole mind, ego, body mechanism through this life and maybe many lives, is that's what we believe in. You know, it's, it's burning up. Mm -hmm. And it burns up through friction. And and if you don't have a spiritual practice, the friction feels like feels like this is wrong, this is punishment, I'm wrong, this is shameful, this person is an asshole. But with the spiritual practice, you see, well, this is the, the, the fire of egolessness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Coming back to... That was... Uh, New Year's was, Day. Yeah, but was that Swamiji's daughter who coined that phrase? She said, this is a year, I think. She oh, said, the, the fire of Swamiji used to have a, a phrase for each year, and she said, the fire of egolessness, which I thought was an amazing start of this year. So it's like, yeah, we're burning in the fire of egolessness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Rana Maharshi used which, this example, which I loved. He said, the spiritual practice is like stirring a funeral pyre, a cremation fire, and you're stirring the embers, you're seeing the body, ego, mind burn to ashes. You keep stirring it and stirring it until it's all just ashes. And then in the end, you throw the stick that you stir with because that's the ego. Mm. It's the last thing. And that's yeah. the, the role of the ego is to stir the fire of egolessness. <laughs> Without ego, there would be no spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, the very, very, very last thing And I think we were just talking about this. Well, the very last thing to go is the ego. We were just talking this morning about how you, when you somehow, by the grace of God or whatever, stumble into spiritual practice and meet a teacher who is a great teacher for you, everything happens at warp speed and explosive stuff happening and everything goes wham, you know, and you're like, wow, riding this roller coaster. And then it seems to slow down and become very subtle after a while. And you're like, Am I stagnating? Am I doing something wrong? But it just becomes so subtle that it's like, you know, it's as if your teacher has just 
pulled the tablecloth from the table and all the cutlery and all the silverware is gone, you know, and uh, and somehow a good teacher has that effect, but the the seed of the whole problem, the ego, the sense of separation and otherness, which is the sense of ego, that's your that's your work. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. And it can be painful and like, you know, Babaji also said to me the other day about burning karm. This incarnation is also the past of incarnation. So it is, it is uh, the, the meditation of this is taking to you from all these buries, the coronation and this and this, are the attic. As, as I said you, they are through karma. And we, 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 we are through meditation to, to finish the karma's chain. So, So do the meditation and prayer to your Guru to, to take surrender. Mm-hmm. And why should I think that burning karm should feel like, like rainbows and unicorns? You know, maybe sometimes it does, but actually that pain, that not even pain, it's a discomfort. Like, yeah. And it, I was recently teaching about Kriya Yoga and Patanjali, and it's like three such important parts. Tapasya, which is the transformation through heat. We have to, yeah. that heat has to come. The Swadhyaya, which is the, we watch and observe and study. And then finally, Ashvara Pranidhan, we surrender everything then yeah. to that higher consciousness that if we really look within, it's innate within all of us, that sense there is not something separate from me, but something as a part of me that is beyond body, mind, and you would ego. Come home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah, it's not surrendering to some god up in the heaven, and it's actually surrender our sense of individuality, so we can become who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a point that many get stuck, and myself in the past have been included in that, thinking that bhakti or devotion means. That I'm an individual I, I'm that Arjun that's suffering in the battlefield or suffering in the mess of my mind. And I am separate than Krishna. I'm separate than God. But actually, the more that we explore that sense of ever-present, of oneness, it's, it's actually... It's just the remembrance that I've always been that. Yeah. But who is going to, in the world, say to you, you're God? Yeah, people have been burned at the stake in all traditions, <laughs> except the Indian tradition. But they've been burned, by, yeah, for saying that. Yeah, I remember first when I first started reading about the Gita, I was like, wow, great. Oh, there's Krishna, who's the teacher of Arjuna, and Arjuna needs teaching. I thought, oh, I'm Arjuna, great. I met Krishna. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm Arjuna, my guru is Krishna. And then... Uh, not much later, I was like, oh, well, actually it's happening inside me. I contain Krishna and Arjun, and one is teaching the other. And then finally, 
Arjun doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Arjun is a confused mind. And Krishna is the always knowing being, and we are the always knowing being. Just somehow we've been so focused on the dog chasing its tail and wanting it to stop that we've forgotten what we really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'm just like, okay, digging. here we are on this podcast and, you know, people that are attracted to some kind of conversation like this are also ready to stop chasing the tail, you know? It's like, you take one step towards guru, guru comes towards you and that might come in the form of an inspiring conversation, in the form of a teacher or a scripture, whatever way it comes. But it's like, how how does one person that's listening, that's ready for freedom, because that's, you know, the mamukshatwa, mm-hmm. that's kind of what they, it says in light of knowledge, right? And that that's the first kind of element that we need to reach self-realization or liberation or all long ultimately long lasting happiness so we all have that desire for freedom and then it's is it like it's the individual path of course my path is different than your path we have the same guru but our path is very unique so it's like I'm just thinking of the listeners Mm. where do they go next you know okay meditation we know it's like how because I know someone that's listening is searching for something maybe they don't have a teacher how can we inspire folks that are interested that have that where do they go next you mean in a very practical way like in any kind of way like maybe this isn't such a practical conversation Maybe this can just inspire someone to close their eyes and look at yeah. the fear of death within. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the it's the thing of just keep observing the phenomenon of the mind. Mm. Keep observing. Keep observing what comes up. Um, without judgment, without opinion, without wanting it to go away or change, but simply. Stop reacting to the mind. It's mm-hmm. not easy, mm-hmm. uh, but it's kind of the only way. And so that's you know that's something you can do all through the day and night, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you totally forget it, and then you mm. whirl around with the whirling dogs for a while, and then you're like, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the I'm the owner of those dogs." You know, I'm not the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you're like that. The dog, the dog, what do you call the dog water walker of the mind? The dog whisperer. <laughs> dog whisperer, yeah, <laughs> the dog whisperer. There's one, there's one uh, aspect of Shiva, I think it's called, where, where he's just he's riding a dog victoriously, and so that's the dog in that picture is the mind, and he's the one who is the you know he's he's the master of the mind. Mm-hmm. So, but I guess that's the whole thing that we want to do. And so if people want to, I think, I think with guidance in one form or another, it is, it is really important because it is true. We know it all, but it doesn't mean that we can do it all alone. And I think that's often where people 
go a little bit wrong. They 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 do feel I know it all, and it's true. But the mind habit is so old and so deep and so powerful that, and the mind cannot see its own pitfalls. So without a person with experience, or wisdom, or good scripture, or, or something, we need to hold something's hand, somebody's hand, to walk this road. Mm. Um, so, you know, not everybody can find a teacher that suits them, but but I say keep looking. You know, what something who inspires you? It might change over time. Mm-hmm. Who or what inspires you? Read some stuff. Pick up books. Listen to podcasts. Anything that can keep reminding you of of this work and keep putting your focus back on what this is really about. Mm-hmm. It's not about ritual mantras. It's not about what you wear. It's not about community and what you know it's 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 about something much much deeper than all that because it's also easy to get caught in in the spiritual dog biting its tail <laughs> you know so uh i don't know if you recommend readings on your podcast or website mm. because uh there's a lot of good writing in all traditions that exists mm-hmm. so we're reading listening discussing meeting the people who are also mm-hmm. interested in it Looking for a teacher, looking for teachers, mm-hmm. Medi- meditate. It's interesting with the the teacher point, like I think especially in the West, this yeah. idea of spirituality is something that is like a, a private, separate kind of part of one's life. And I've heard it said, you don't go to a doctor or you don't go think you can give yourself a surgery. No. Like to actually explore and get to like you said it's so deep the workings of the mind how could we even expect our mind which is like those wild dogs to to be able to untangle itself like to actually have a teacher and even now like for me and my sadhana my teacher I have my guru but he's not in this form so I'm not asking him he's not personally instructing my sadhana but he's there as my own self reflecting and to me what i need to do not even do because it's not about doership but where i need to place my attention Mm -hmm. and that happens in the form of audio video books satsangis whatever it is yeah but like i think we need to also open our open our mind to what it means to have a teacher, what it means to have support on on this path. Yeah, and community. Now our guru passed seven years ago, and I feel more than ever the community that shaped around our guru, our the ashram, the people who belongs, to, you know, the people who have this that are with, we have the same guru that. They have. They all becoming guru for each other. You know, it's so. I'm. Uh, I'm right. I'm appreciating that a group of people so much because mm-hmm. I feel that now guru speaks through all of them, through all of us. We all reflect that uh, 
whatever he was. And uh, so right company is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and like our guru said, if you can't find right company, it's much better to be alone than being in right, wrong company. And the ego hates being alone because it doesn't get validation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the ego will say, no, 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 just be with anyone. But especially in the start of your sadhana, it's so easy to get sidetracked into something else. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a community or a teacher or a practice that keeps putting your back on, this is the point. Meaning the point is, what are we really Mm-hmm. And what is what are we seeking? Mm-hmm. Because it can take a million shapes, and it does. And there's a million ways to get lost. And I think, too, even using our power of discernment, even at all times, you know, to practice. Because I think for me, that's been kind of my revelation in the last months, that I can get attached to even an idea of what a spiritual community should mean for me. And then and then I you know, I as you know, I I I got burned and and that's fine because I'm I'm you know, I'm accepting that getting burnt is a a part of the evolution of burning the way the karm. But I, I think what became clear for me is that it takes all shapes and forms and disguises the mind, the intellect, the ego, and where we get attached, yeah. where the attachment of ideas can actually bind us. And so it's like this kind of two part dance I'm feeling for me myself right now. It's like like, you know, we take the right effort, we make the right action, we move towards life supporting decisions and situations like like towards those sattvic qualities, but ultimately we have to transcend even the sattva, mm. even the sense of I'm a good person, I'm a good yogi, I've come so far, because it's still like ego becoming more crystallized. Yeah. And to just keep kind of offering all of that up to that guru, to that inner knower that is ever there guiding even what feels to be bondage or feels to be suffering or conflict or anything like to keep offering that up again and again and using the discernment at the same time like with this mind and how to make the mind my friend mm. and I'm the master of the mind because it's so easy to get bound into that like you said to think I'm the dog not the one riding the dog victoriously <laughs> and ever blissfully <laughs> you know yeah it's like a strong spiritual subtle insights always come from where you don't expect them. And so does the challenges. You know, the, your sudden extreme ego, ego identification and with the hurt that it brings also comes like a flash when you least expect it. You know, something triggers something that, that you still hold. And, uh, and it can be so painful and somehow with ritual practice, it even feels much more painful because you know it's not necessary. So you feel, you feel the, when you get caught, it feels so much more painful. Before you were constantly caught mm-hmm. and you had flashes mm-hmm. of this 
magnificent Sunday morning for 10 minutes when everything was perfect and then you were caught again, <laughs> you know, and now it's like most of the time you're uncaught, but then when you get caught, it's like a bird that has been released and is flying and then every six months or every, I don't know how often it happens, but, you know, every once in a while, suddenly you're in the cage and it's terrible, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like you said before, like you get through the sadhana, we get more refined, more refined, more subtle, more subtle. So then when something happens, it's yeah. like, Ugh. But then also the, the, the chance for insight and teaching, because it is, this is, like we say, place at the feet of guru, and we say guru is everything. So this whole world of action and change is guru. You know, so every person who comes and steps on your toes is guru. And uh, mm -hmm. so we have to appreciate it somehow. It's a play we're being shown. We are the spectators of this play. Mm -hmm. Now this little, little person I call me goes and sees this person called something else and there's some, something happens and we're watching, oh my God, you know. Mm -hmm. But the moment we're inside the puppet and watching through the eyes of the puppet, we only see the other person being wrong. We don't, but if you step back and we're not inside the head of any of the puppets mm. and we're the spectator, we're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. this person has expectations and habits and this one has other habits and other conditionings and now they clash mm -hmm. and they're both looking for happiness mm -hmm. <laughs> and they both think they're doing right mm -hmm. and they both think this is the right thing to do in this situation. Yeah. This is Rumi poem. I can't remember it exactly but it's quite well known uh, so out out there beyond ideas of right and wrong there's a field I will meet you there when you lie down in that soft grass we don't even exist or I something, love that or something like yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's really beautiful and then you people will say well there's right and wrong in the world and you should fight well all the trouble in the world is because we think there's a solution to the dog chasing its tail. Like, let's cut off the tail. Let's kill the dog. <laughs> let's, cu let's cut the dog's ears off. You know, all the things we do to dogs. <laughs> yeah. Let's take the dog to an agility class. <laughs> you know, but it's still just going to be a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. There is no solution on the level of mind. And all the problems that we are disagreeing about, they are a result of not being aware of the limitation of the mind tool. The mind tool can do things, but it mm -hmm. can't bring us happiness. Mm -hmm. It can bring us chocolate cake. And it can't bring peace in the world. No. I read in Nisargadatta, he said, like, I'm obviously paraphrasing, it's probably really profound, but it's something that stuck with me is just that if you want to help the world, you have to be beyond the need of help. Yeah. And how do you do that is... Like Babaji said, that's how you look at the world. Yeah, don't interfere. Yeah, don't interfere. Because ultimately, if I'm trying to change and save the world externally, like it's just keeping, then I'm the dog again. And you're always changing and saving the world from your perspective as yeah, a exactly. being. You know, and yeah. if you, as the moment you, as, as long as you think you're a human being, you're going to save the people you think need saving, mm -hmm. and you're going to ignore the ones who you know you're gonna you're gonna mm -hmm. add very it's very difficult not to add to the separate separatist thinking yeah so it's like it's such a cliche but it's so true like the peace 
we seek in the world begins within. Yeah. And like that's actually a much more complex and deeper and also simple at the same time work than to look out external and say, you need fixing, you need saving, this yeah. needs fix it. You're okay, you're half okay, your children are okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, you deserve funding, you deserve punishment. Yeah. You know, if... if uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you can meet every being on your way with love. And like, as the soul, like you as said, soul, Ram Das. Yeah. Uh, Ram Das called that loving awareness. And he said, his mantra is, he said, my mantra is, I am loving awareness. Mm-hmm. Meaning I'm aware, but awareness is loving, non-judgmental. And love is not separating things. Love is uniting everything. Mm-hmm. If you can walk through the world like that, mm-hmm. then you're not even walking through the world. Yeah. <laughs> you are floating with the world. And, you know, if that, if we could do that, there would not be all these, you know manufactured famines and manufactured borders, manufactured... Okay, these people we ignore, and these we help, and these are wrong, and these should be silenced, and these should be, you know, it's like making any being less than God mm-hmm. is a kind of violence. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a deep practice to remember that because it's it's easy for me to look at you as some a friend that I love and respect to say you're a god, but to say Thank that you. to my likewise. No, but then to to practice that with some you know someone we know that's wronged us. Never mind someone. Oh that, my god! Yeah. You know someone that's the mastermind of war. Or, to remember that or to practice that. It's all God. It's all me. It's all that same one reality. That's what. That it's is a, tough, and to know that that person one. who did terrible things, either just in our house or on the world scale, they thought they were creating goodness. Mm-hmm. They were also looking for happiness and goodness, but totally misguided. And that's why we need guides. <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if people who who come to the top power of this world, who hold all the millionaires, you know, and all the people who so so we say run the world. Of course, they don't run the world, but it looks on a material plane like they run the world. If they have not practiced awareness and they don't have a teacher, you know, when you get blown up to that power size, it's like you take a balloon, there's a little black spot in the balloon and you blow it up and that black spot becomes enormous. So, you know, if you if you want to influence the world and you have not worked on your blind spots, then they become... Your blind spots become continents once you reach that state of power, and that is what you see. Mm-hmm. All the you know, all the dictators of different kinds, corporate or military or <laughs> whatever organs they exist in, mm-hmm. if they have not have no self awareness, they bring the shadow of that into everything they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's what can we do? We can't force or anybody to change or but it's again like I love that point of how we look because if I'm looking at someone that's offended or hurt me as a separate individual that means I'm a separate individual and then it will always be conflict there'll never be any sense of resolution on the inner level yeah so it's like 
putting these principles into practice is like the real kind of nitty gritty. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love what Swamiji says, those four points. Okay, let me remember them. I know you know them. So your friends could change at any time. Your situation could change at any time. You could die at any time. And you are pure free forever. Yeah. Like... If I move in the world with these kind of reminders or mantras, whatever you want to say, like, doesn't mean I'm not going to get affected mm. when the situation changes or when I'm faced with my own death or when my friends change. But actually, how to remain established and pure free forever. Yeah. That's kind of like the life's work, the life's purpose, it feels like for me. And nothing else, I'm doing other things, but... Yeah. Feels like the highest priority. Yeah. We're trying to sink down and put our feet on solid ground instead of panically trying not to drown in the surface. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's funny how we keep ping-ponging back and forth between Swamiji and Babaji, but they speak the same language and it's so beautiful. And they... Uh, they yeah they have they exist in very different settings and different histories but they speak from the same place and so so Babaji has this one liner he keeps <laughs> saying which is which is uh, you die every day you are born every day you don't even exist nice we have the same <laughs> yeah, it's same a, essence it's the same thing you know and we could yeah. read that same essence in Many different teachers, scriptures. Yeah. yeah. It's all bringing the awareness back to that space. Yeah. Of deathlessness, yeah, of um, birthlessness. Guru speaks through so many vessels, so many beings, mm -hmm. through history and all traditions. And I find that so beautiful and intoxicating, actually. It makes me so high to read about it and see that it's all, of, and of course it is like that, you know. If only one person spoke the truth, you know how how come that one person says you can all know this and become this? You know, Buddha said it. <laughs> you know, I'm an example of your potential. So of course it's been spoken in humanity again and again and again and again in so many different languages, and it's then the essence of all spiritual traditions mm -hmm. that's then been painted over by all kind of religious practice and community differences you know, mm -hmm. but on the in the mm -hmm. in the courts there mm -hmm. and then i guess then it's it's there the knowledge is so readily available and it's up to us yeah to put our attention on it it's right there staring us in the face yeah. from every place all the time but then it's i love that i think swamiji would say i'm giving you the food but you have to eat it and i love yeah. i kind of have this vision of like it's like the most amazing restaurant like that I just I wanted to go. I'm such a foodie. The best vegan restaurant in the whole world. And I go and it's like going to satiate me and I read the menus beautiful. The settings got a great ambiance. It's just perfect. And I read the menu. I look at it and then I go home. <laughs> you know, like actually I want to I have to eat the food no, you to go, feel. But before you go home you kind of buy some kind of accessory from the restaurant so people can see you've been there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 
<laughs> organic tofu. Yeah, so and a lot of spiritual spiritual practice in the West. Yeah. And probably in India too is like that, you know, you wear the orange bandana or whatever it is you wear to show I've been to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But do you eat the food? Yeah, like eat it, to absorb <laughs> it, to die, to make it not even making me to know it's me. Like yeah. that's like where I'm at right now and like the nectar of immortality. Yes, because that's the I'm thinking about our subject was fear of death. Mm-hmm. This is a good. And we're coming full circle yes, here. Yes, yeah. Good, that yeah. that uh, you know how do we eat the nectar of immortality? And you know, you say it takes a long time, but I know you had an experience with somebody you sat with who died, who died at a young age, and it was such a beautiful story, mm-hmm. and really made an impression on me. And I know you you almost want to cry when you tell it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to Yeah. Well it it's a touching story for me because well, for many things like culturally and on a mental level, because I have this tendency within me to want to save everybody in the entire world and particularly that comes out in the relationship I feel to kids that are suffering back in 2017 and actually it's really interesting because it was only a couple months after Swamiji had left his body as many people say or then I had this experience of guru power everywhere and then to sit with a boy only 12 years old that his whole life has been suffering you know he abandoned at an early age found in the streets so ill so sick so alone he didn't even know his name so the ones who found him gave him the name Hanuman which we know Hanuman is that god that's worshipped for the courage and the devotion to Ram and the bravery and and pure heart and pure heart and this boy Hanuman he somehow had this pure heartedness even though he had had so much suffering we meet certain people in our lives and there's a deep connection. So, you know, doing the work with the charity, spending a lot of time with this boy in this community, trying to understand Indian culture that I'll never understand because I'm not an Indian person. So seeing this boy suffering, HIV positive. So because of his HIV status, he was denied access to health care. Even though me, as a, like we were saying before, a, a person coming from another culture that wants to save in my way, because, you know, we see someone suffering. It's in, we want to ease suffering. I think that's innate in most people. And ultimately, he never received the care that he needed because of his HIV status in a society that's still very much stigmatized on all levels of society, including health care and government. But also, and the suffering that I went through not being able to help this person. And in the end, knowing that he passed away and I couldn't as if save him from an injustice in the world was such a deep teaching also, like deep in a different way than it was to my friend that passed last year. He's lived a whole life of privilege but to see the injustice of the world that why should one small little human suffer so much in one small life 
only to then be disregarded by society as not worth saving or supporting. And I remember the last time I saw him before he passed, his eyes were like shining like a wise, liberated sage. And in all the days and weeks he was in the hospital, he was so sick he couldn't speak. He never showed any fear. I saw him just shed one single tear. And and after he also left his body, even though I didn't see it in that way, Swamiji was a great Mahatma that just was ready to go on. But with Hanuman, I saw I had so much suffering inside of me because it was so unjust. But the more that I sat with it, the more that I looked at death, it was actually he liberated himself. And the why am I suffering because of my ideas and my attachment to what his life should have been? And actually the teaching in it, of course it's motivated me now to advocate so that doesn't happen again, but on a mm-hmm. deeper level that it is all karma. I can never know what's God's plan, who is meant to be where they are and suffer in the way that they suffer. And now he's free. The being that that shines behind those eyes, that being is the being that is in all of us. Mm -hmm. And to take a painful experience like witnessing a child passing and to really like sink into it of like what is the essence of being alive, I think that was for me, the biggest teaching I had about death in my life, and I'm sure I'll have more. Yeah, you sure will. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I will. But it was pretty blown, you know, to... So in a way, yeah, I mean, he he was a reflection of Guru. He he was a Guru. He was such a teacher. I remember him every day. Mm. You're right, he he was Guru. And... And to remember that essence of courage and bravery when I'm going through a difficult time, I have the teachings and the blessings of this rare, rare, rare being that blessed my life with only, you know, two years of knowing him. And yet, on the mind level, I thought, here I am, a person of privilege, here to save somebody. Oh, I haven't saved him, I've failed. And actually, he was the teacher. Yeah. He was the wise sage. Who is liberated now, you know? And yeah. wow. Kind of turns the head inside out, though. Yeah, the mind can never make sense of all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what touches us, what teaches us. Mm-hmm. And yet it's continuing to teach us at every yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, this is a been a great season finale of the <laughs> Curious Yogi podcast coming full circle. All through this season two, I've been asking questions. So each and every episode is a question. So the first question was how to get beyond the fear of death. Yeah. What would you say is the question that we answered today? What the, what the answer is, what the well, question we, was? What was the question? We had We unveiled the answer here. But what was the question? That will be the title episode of... What is the What was the question? I think this first question in your season was the fear of death. How to get beyond the fear yeah. of death. So 
I feel it's the same, but on a much subtler level, because we are actually talking about the death of ego. It's not the death of the body. So, um, you know, how you, you worked and worked on your spiritual progress, and you let go of so many things, and Swamiji has pulled the tablecloth or the carpet out from under your feet, you know, <laughs> but still you're sitting there holding something, which is the ego, which is the, the ultimate death, which leads to deathlessness. So, uh, I don't know, could this could be the fear of the death of the ego or the death of the ego? How to, how to remain deathless? How to, what was it? The the fire of egolessness. How to remain, burn in the fire? How to burn in the fire of egolessness? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Let's see how many clicks. We yes. Get. Is Good. that clickbait enough? Clickbait. We need clickbait. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, such a beautiful morning here. Oh my god. Yeah. It's a good yeah. it's a good setting. To Let's go down to the Shiva temple and offer up our egos. Yes, please. <laughs> I think I need to. Each and every day. Love it. And lunch. And lunch. Zero increases the value of oneness. Increases the value. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdia Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.